Hey, it's Steve Lehman, and welcome back to the new season of the Asymptote Podcast. Interviews, readings, and reports from the latest issue of our online journal. On today's episode, I speak with the acclaimed poet and author Hiromi Ito. Her essay, Living Trees and Dying Trees, was published in the fall 2020 issue of Asymptote, translated from the Japanese by John L. Pitt. Stick around to the end of the episode to hear an excerpt from the essay read by John himself. You can check out asymptotejournal.com for more works and translation from around the world. Hiromi is the award-winning author of more than 50 books of poetry, essays, novellas, and novels, including Killing Kanoko and Wild Grass on the Riverbank. She lived in California for over 20 years and is now a professor of literature at Waseda University in Tokyo. You're going to hear a lot about trees and plants in this episode. Some trees are 100 years old. Some trees are 1,000 years old. Hiromi Ito is 65 years old. She wanted me to share that with you. Here's our conversation. Hi, Hiromi. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me here. To start off, uh, I've read that at the beginning of your career, you were writing about themes that other poets weren't writing about in Japan, like sexuality, your own body. Who were your role models back then? Who inspired you? Well, Ginsburg could wow. be, yeah. Um, there are several women poets in Japan, and then I was influenced by them. But also, when I was 20, I met uh, American poet, Shidaling Fox. So my teacher was translating her work, and then that was much more straight, direct, feminist poetry. And then I was very influenced by that, and I was translating for my teacher. So my teacher brushed up that translation. So 20 years old girl, you know, translating that kind of stuff is really good for me. Um, were the other Were there other poets uh, around when you were starting out in the 70s and 80s, writing about the subject matter that you were writing about in Japan? I am the first, actually, that time. Wow. You know, there's a, there was a, no, still, she's living, uh, Shiraishi Kazuko. She was writing about uh, sexual stuff and much more jazzy stuff. But uh, maybe I am the next generation. Yeah, people hated me, but uh, I don't know. I'm I'm very insensitive about these things, you know. So I'm just, uh, you know, I was just writing whatever I, I was interested in. So when I was young and then my main theme was fastable, body, because I was um, eating disorder. So I was interested in my bones, my menstruation, my body, and my masturbation. And then I was interested in having a sex, and you know, then I had a, I had a baby. So I was interested in my body again, and in a different way. And then my body through my birth or breastfeeding or that kind of stuff. So body is always my 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 base. Critics and admirers of you have called you a feminist poet, um, but in a previous interview, you said that you weren't a good feminist. Why do you say that? Somehow, as a young woman, 
I didn't want to face my womanness. And then, yeah, of course, I was there with feminism, but then that time feminism was not the uh, still, you know, it never be the mainstream in in the culture. But then uh, I don't know, maybe feminism was two women, so I I wanted to be something else, and then so you know, being eating disorder is like that. You know, I want to be always something like something others beside women. So that's why I didn't say that. And then, uh, but then, uh, of course, feminism is uh, the way, you know, like uh, we express that uh, I want to be as I am. I want to write something I feel I am. So, you know, now I realize that I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a feminist and I'm writing about the feminism theme all the way, you know. But then at that time, I didn't want to admit it. You also, you just reminded me, um, there's another quote uh, from a previous interview that I really liked where you said that um, when you learned that uh, in medieval Japan, menstruating women were seen as dirty um, and they, they had to go oh, somewhere yeah. else. Very. <laughs> Yeah, you 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 said that that gave you power to write poetry. I was wondering if if you could elaborate on that. How how did that give you power? It's a traditionally, you know, very traditionally, we treated uh, menstruating women as the dirty stuff, and then uh, they had to not now, you know, it is not now. They had to live outside of the house, and then uh, they can't, they couldn't use the same fire to cook. They couldn't use same thing, you know, something like that. So, in Japan, we treated we not me, but then the Japanese people treated menstru- menstruation as a dirty stuff, just like a death. It's so fun, you know, being discriminated or they're thinking about my menstruation is dirty or myself is dirty, you know. So it's so so interesting. So I read a lots of, you know, um, old books, you know, like a classic, classicals, you know, Japanese classical. There are lots of discrimination against women, and I loved it. Do you say that you loved it because it, it motivated you or inspired you to write? Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> I, I don't think I can answer that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fun. In, in another interview uh, from the yeah. L- Louisiana Literature Festival in Denmark, oh, yeah. um, you talked about how death and sexuality have always been connected in your writing. It seems like the environment is also a major theme for you. How does the environment connect to those other two major aspects of your work? Actually, I, you know, I moved, I was kind of in and out, you know, California and in Japan for since... 91 and then but then 97 i you know definitely moved there with kids and then i got a dog and i started to walk with a dog then i started to see the californian you know landscape california nature californian plants and which is so different from my own hometown and then uh, every time uh, when i went back to Actually, now I'm in Japan. I came back to Japan. 
I realized that, that how different. And then uh, the plants here or plant there are so, are so attractive. So it's getting more and more. And then also, then I was, uh, when I moved to California, I was 40. Yeah. And then uh, after that, my parents were getting old and they were, they, they were, you know, a long process. They were dying. I was watching them dying. And then the humans dying, death and life. And then also plants. I was growing up plants in my house. And sometimes, you know, at the peak was I had 200 pots in my house. And then they are dying, they are living, or they died and they're coming back again. And so I was watching, you know, humans dying and plants dying or humans living and plants are living. And that's so interesting. They are similar, but then different. But then sometimes it's the same, but then not totally different or that kind of feeling. I have a lot more questions for you about the environment um, mm. coming up. First, though, I'm glad you brought up um, California because I I know that uh, this essay featured in, in Asymptote in the fall 2020 issue called uh, Living yeah. Trees and Dying Trees is an excerpt from your book of essays, Tree Spirits, Grass Spirits, um, yeah. which you wrote between 2012 and 2014 while living in Southern California. And I was wondering what brought you to California and the United States uh, originally? You know, first of all, I was interested in Native Americans' poetry, oral tradition. And then I met Jerome Rosenberg. He's a poet. And actually, I was influenced by him a lot. And then, uh, so, you know, Jerome Rosenberg, who published uh, Shaking Pumpkin, the uh, so so many books about, uh, you know, Native Americans' oral tradition. And then... Uh, Another guy, he he was he was a Japanese. He died already, and he translated uh, Native Americans' oral tradition into Japanese, which was so beautiful. And then uh, it's very similar to our oldest oral tradition, our oldest songs or poetry or that kind of stuff. So I was interested in that, and then I wanted to see that the real you know, environment or real land or the coyote. I really wanted to see the coyote. So that's how I I came to America. Uh, to, you know, actually Jerome Rothenberg. So, you know, as a visiting scholar in uh, UCSD. You know, then I met, uh, you know, my husband who died, you know, already. He was uh, Jerome Rothenbach's really best friend. And they're living almost next door to door, next door. So I met him, my husband, and, and Harold Cohen. He was also teaching in UCSD. And then I got involved with him and I couldn't get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> was there uh, a wide readership in Japan of, of uh, indigenous North American poetry? Kanazeki Hisao is a translator and he did a really great job. And then through his translation, so many fans there, you know, people were reading it. Also, we have Ainu. So Ainu poetry, Ainu is a 
you know, how do you say, minority uh, in Japan. And then uh, their poetry or oral tradition are very similar to Native Americans one. You mentioned uh, in a BBC interview um, back in February that you felt more free in California. Um, How did that influence your, your writing and your poetry? Well... I couldn't write for a long time when I started to come to California. So I don't know. I I had a really big slump and I didn't want to keep on writing contemporary poetry. So I'm kind of trying to switch into more prose. And then, uh, well, it's wonderful. California, nobody knew me. So I was freer. I had different type of the difficultness dealing with people. Also, my English is not the native, you know, speaker's one. So I was not taken, I was, as I say, I was not taken seriously by people. It's a kind of very slight, small size of discrimination or, or, or the all the time and then so it was I was very frustrated but then uh, so I could write about that so it was really good the life in California opened up my world you know I really realized I came back to Japan it's everything I can't say everything but then especially about uh, you know like uh, human rights or how we live we are really behind. So the life in America really opened up my view, how do, how to see the world. Do you still get a lot of criticism today about, about the, the things you write about? Not at all, no. Getting old is wonderful. So I'm 65 and nobody said anything. <laughs> do you feel less discrimination now that you're older? Yeah, not at all, actually. I don't have any. Wow. Oh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't care. Well, that's good. Mm. Um, so I'd like to ask you uh, about living trees and dying trees now uh, and the environment in your writing more generally. Yeah. The essay opens with the death of a beloved tree in your neighborhood uh, yeah. in California and the heartbreak of realizing that it was gone. And um, you write... Quote, I had felt bad many times over about not being able to help the dying trees, unquote. Can you talk a little bit about your personal connection to plants and why they're important to you? Actually, I was always interested in that. When I was a child, uh, when I was a kid, you know, um, I, I grew up in Tokyo. And then uh, Tokyo, especially in the 60s and 70s, they're really less nature. So, but then I was interested in that. So I was interested in the weed alongside the road. So I was always watching the, you know, weed. And then most of the weed are, how do you say, an invasive plants, you know. Sometimes they came from, you know, somewhere, mostly, you know, North Carolina, uh, North America, you know, like, uh, for example, golden rod, American golden rod. Yeah. Or, uh, mm, I don't know the in- English name, but then that kind of plants. So I saw 
that kind of plants around around my my neighborhood when I grew up. But I was interested in these plants, any little ones. So, you know, I grew up as a the person who likes plants, but then just that. But then I got into when I went to California more because there are so many uh, exotic plants for me. And then I started to know, I I really wanted to know their names, but then I couldn't. So I named them myself. It's a Japanese name, but nobody understand that. So I wanted to talk about the plants, but then the, I named them, but they nobody knows the name. So I started to know their Latin name. And that's how I got into the plants more. In his translator's note, uh, John L. Pitt writes that um, living trees and dying trees is a reflection of your experience as an immigrant in the United States and that you process that experience by writing about plant life. How do plants help you make sense of your own move to the U.S. and your, your own experience as an immigrant? Yeah, you know... Best thing is uh, this. This is uh, the, this dying tree and living tree. This is an essay. I have another book. It's called uh, "Wild Grass in the Riverbank," mm-hmm. and this is a poetry book. And Jeffrey Angus translated, and then uh, that is much more like uh, me as a plants that kind of way. So this is a story book. And it's a poetry, and then I I feel like I'm a I'm a I'm an invasive plant in California. That actually that brings me to another question uh, I have for you. Yeah. Also in his in his translation note, John quotes you from an essay in this new collection, Tree Spirits, Grass Spirits, yeah. where you write that while working on wild grass on the riverbank, um, quote, I had a moment where I couldn't tell if I myself was a human being or if I was a plant, (laughs) unquote. Um, What did you mean by that? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, you know, at that time, I I, I cut hair a little bit, you know, but then I had very long, long black hair. So I feel like I loved plants and I'm writing about the plant too much and I feel like my hair is making chlorophyll. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I felt very strongly, you know. And then, you know, every steps I make when I walked, I feel like I have, I have a root. And then, you know, take off, you know, my roots from the ground, you know, something like that. I have a few questions for you about translation. The Chicago Review yeah. wrote that you called the English language version of Wild Grass and the Riverbank uh, a lost original of the Japanese text. And they quote you saying, um, <laughs> yeah. quote, as I read out loud the English of the English translation, I feel as if that is really my true voice. And I am caught up in the illusion that this is the way that I've been telling the story since the very beginning, unquote. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, I wrote that after I moved to California. And I started to use English my daily lives and in my family. So I should have written in, you know, that kind of stuff in English, but then I couldn't, you know, my English writing is awful. So I was writing in Japanese, so it's okay. It's beautiful because I wrote, but then uh, when I 
read, you know, the translation. I was so, actually, I was so moved. And that's exactly what I wanted to say. And then I couldn't. So he did it. So that's why I thought this is the original. And then my Japanese one is my Japanese version. So I know you've translated books from English into Japanese, but you also said that you you mainly translate from Chinese into Japanese. Yeah, it's actually, you know, like uh, Chinese, which is the ancient one. I'm interested in uh, sutra, Buddhist sutra. Mm -hmm. So Ha Sutra or Lotus Sutra, that kind of stuff I'm translating. And then that I'm, doesn't mean that I'm a Buddhist. Maybe I am, but uh, more more interested in sutra, like uh, other poetry. So it is very similar to my interest to the Native American oral tradition. Luckily, it was written in Chinese, so you know we all educated like uh, like uh, you guys can read Latin, that kind of way. We are all educated. We can read, you know, that kind of old Chinese. Mm. So that's how I translated. Back in that, in the interview with the Louisiana Literature Festival, uh, you compared yeah. yourself to a medieval poet traveling from place to place to perform and tell stories. Right. In your case, traveling yeah. from university to university, festival to festival. How has the pandemic changed the way that you engage with your readers oh, and, and your audience? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I don't go anywhere. So I'm just staying my my house and then uh, doing a teach online teaching. And I found a lot, you know, so interesting, this online teaching. So, so many people, my colleagues, they don't like the online teaching. They always said, you know, face-to-face -face is much more fun. But I found lots of possibilities in this way, online teaching. What surprised you about online teaching? What do you like about it? I can feel people's voice more through Zoom. It's more things to do, but then, uh, you know, actually I like it. Yeah, and I can invite people very easily, and they teleport it, you know. When I was child, when I was a kid, I loved, you know, reading comics and so on. And then at that time, I loved, you know, like experts, you know, who had a special ability. So I loved, uh, you know, thinking about the teleport, teleportation or telekinesis or telepathy or that kind of stuff. And this is real now. People are teleporting from somewhere else, you know, in my Zoom. Yeah, that's true. We, I, I'm teleporting into uh, Tokyo right now, and you're in exactly. Philly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me. This was really fun. Thank you so much for and uh, enduring for my English. Thank you so oh. much. Yeah, this was great. And now, here's John L. Pitt reading an excerpt from Living Trees and Dying Trees by Hiromi Ito. You can read the full essay and many other great works in translation in the fall 2020 issue of Asymptote at asymptotejournal.com. Thanks for listening. A large tree in my neighborhood died in early spring. I wasn't sure whether or not I should say that it had died, or that it had been killed, or that it had been cut down. 
To me, it was a big event. For a while, I couldn't bring myself to talk about it. I've only just now come around to feeling ready to do so. It was a pepper tree, a California pepper tree of the Anacardaceae family. It has California in the name, so naturally there are plenty of them growing around here. You see them all the time, so they're easy to recognize. With coarse bark and leaves that hang down like willows or ferns, they develop clusters of small red berries. The one in my neighborhood had grown large and thick, and its branches hung down over the road. The tree was always there. I admired it every time I passed by. The word luxuriant came to mind, with the Chinese characters for melancholy and blue. The tree created a melancholic shade that made just about everything look blue. Whenever I passed by it, I would remember the voice of May, the young girl from the animated film My Neighbor Totoro, and how she would call a row of trees a tree tunnel. And as soon as I would think this, my children would say, a tree tunnel, in unison, imitating May. My husband would always say, it takes about a hundred years to grow that much. He too had lived close to a hundred years, and thus he felt an affinity for the tree as he said this. In short, it was a tree that each member of my family had become attached to in our own way. It stood in front of a few small houses, rental homes with no yards or fences. They were hidden in the shade of the tree. The tree, which was larger than these homes, was always there, its branches hanging down over the road in a luxurious manner. It was an early morning in spring when my daughter went outside and called out, The tree's been cut! It was all so sudden that it didn't seem real. A feeling came over me, reminding me that I was aware things like this could happen. I had had this experience many times before, in many places, and I was never able to do anything about it. I had felt bad, many times over, about not being able to help the dying trees. I tried making up a story. The tree had fallen ill and was beginning to rot. We had, a long time ago, cut down a pine tree for this very reason. I tried another story. It was pressing against the power lines, so the city took action and cut it down. That the residents considered the tree a nuisance or even hated it, this was the hardest explanation to consider. Should we ask someone about it? Asked Tome, my youngest. Uh, but it's not really something we can ask anyone about, is it? Replied Sarako, the older of the two. That evening, the sky was pink. To both the east and west, it was brilliantly colored. I took the dogs for a walk up to where the tree had been. We had walked here often in the past. Back then, the dogs were young, and I took them out every day. There were two houses that had dogs along the way. We always got barked at. My dogs were young and reckless, and when they got barked at by dogs they didn't know, they barked right back without caring that they were probably in someone else's territory. This time, too, we got barked at, but my dogs, who had once long ago been young, had now become feeble granny dogs. They no longer cared about dogs they didn't know. Since our dogs didn't react to them, you could hear the other dogs barking begin to mellow out. As a result, I realized that what I had thought was a voice meant to intimidate was actually just showing off. A voice calling out, Look at me! Look! There were many acacias along the path. Each one was in bloom, the oxalis, too, spread out all over. It was evening, so the flowers were closed up. 
There were lawns where succulents had been planted. There was a creeping geranium, its flowers in bloom, climbing up a fence with no end in sight. The tree was gone. Bright light stretched out over the road. It was now thoroughly empty. The branches and trunk had been pulverized, seemingly put through a chipper shredder. Several Mexican men were cleaning up the wood chips. Perhaps they were the ones who had lived near the tree, or perhaps they had just been hired to help cut it down. All traces of the tree had gone, and the spot where it had once stood was now a dense pile of fine sawdust that resembled sand. It was a small spot, about the size of three tatami mats. I thought it was miraculous that such a giant tree could grow out of such a small spot and support itself. The sidewalk had been vigorously torn up. At my feet were fallen leaves, which were scattered over the sidewalk in the road. They fell the moment the tree was cut down. As the felled tree was dragged down and cut apart, its leaves spread all around. For a while after this happened to the tree, I was sad, and I stopped going down that road. And then after a short while, I returned to Japan. I spent most of spring in Kumamoto. My oldest daughter, Kanoko, who was pregnant at the time, came along with her husband as well. I took them to the town of Takamori in Aso, as I wanted to show them the giant tree there. This is the story of a living tree. The Asymptote Podcast is produced by me, with music by Blue Dot Sessions. Big thanks to Hiromi Ito for the conversation, and to John L. Pitt for his reading and for his coordination help. John was actually interviewed recently on the Asymptote blog, which you should definitely check out. Special thanks to Katya Olsen-Shpiatsky and Laura Lehman for their help with this episode. Until next time, I'm Steve, and this was the Asymptote Podcast.